Hey, hello everybody and welcome back to the Logos Project. This is your host Dom. In today's video, I'm joined by Dr. Sean Blanchard to speak about uh, Jansenism and the Synod of Pistoia. Uh, Sean, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Dom. Thanks for having me on the show. I'll talk Anytime. about I'll talk about Jansenism with anyone who will listen. <laughs> Anytime. It's good to have you on. Uh, yeah, so this is a, a fascinating historical um, chronology, um, you know, a movement. And I have a lot of questions. I don't know that much about it. So I'm glad to have you on because this, this is your subject matter, right? You're the, the SME, subject matter expert. So uh, I guess to kick things off, um, maybe could we start uh, a good background might be the De Auxilis controversy. What in the world is that? And, and how is that related to Jansenism? Yeah, definitely. Um, so De Auxilius is a, um, it, it, well, I mean, I, I sort of uh, Americanized my pronunciation there. I think you were much <laughs> You're better, Dom. But uh, it's one of those things that gets said so often that it gets kind yeah. of uh, the pronunciation um, changes. But um, yeah, so basically to understand when, when I when I teach about Jansenism in class, I start with or I describe it as a a series of controversies, a movement that arises out of the reception mm -hmm. of the Council of Trent. So one way we can kind of bracket it okay. chronologically is we can think of Reformation, Counter-Reformation, Catholic <laughs> Reformation, however we want to talk about that, through to the French Revolution. Mm. That's one way to tell the story. Another way to tell the story um, of this set of controversies would be to begin in the 18th century and to bracket it more as about enlightenment and reform Catholicism and then go all the way to Vatican II. So we're going back, which is one okay. important way to tell the story. Um, but I think we're going to do both uh, if we have time. So sure. <laughs> basically, I would say there's there's sort of three things at play here. On one hand, you have um, the Council of Trent condemns Lutheranism and Calvinism, mm -hmm. um, at least at, insofar as it perceives certain ideas to be Lutheran or Calvinist. Some mm -hmm. of those ideas are related to divine grace. Okay, so you have this kind of out-of-bounds marker for Catholic theology. You can't say what Luther and Calvin are saying about the, the divine will or um, the relationship mm -hmm. between good works and faith, etc. On the other hand, they they obviously condemn Pelagianism. You know, mm -hmm. they are there. They reaffirm the numerous condemnations of Pelagianism, but they mm -hmm. don't solve all of the all of the problems and all of the questions. So one question and problem that comes up. Um, very quickly is related to what is the proper Catholic understanding? Okay, so we can't be Pelagians, we can't be Calvinists, but what actually do we teach? And there was a professor at the University of Louvain, uh, which is in modern day Belgium, named Michel de Bay, who is known as Bias. So Bias had this very kind of extreme Augustinian take. Um, okay. Very much de-emphasized the power of human reason and the human will and massively emphasized mm. predestination, grace, et cetera. So yeah. uh, bias is condemned by Pope Pius V in 1567, uh, a bull called um, ex, on, ex omnibus. Um, but this is a kind of inconclusive condemnation for a number of reasons. So this debate continues mm -hmm. and the two major parties of the debate are the Dominicans um, who, of course, are Thomists, and they're specifically thinking uh, through the lens of Banez, um, uh, Domingo de Banez, I believe. Um, but you could get a lot of people on the show okay. that know a lot more about him than I do. Um, but essentially, the Dominicans emphasize predestination. They emphasize what they call uh, physical predetermination. Um, 
And they understand that human will as included in the divine will in a certain sense. It's a very complex debate and they make, as always, you know, dozens and dozens of distinctions. Um, but they believe that essentially God offers um, sufficient grace to everyone, but efficient grace, the grace that actually leads to salvation is offered to the elect. Okay. And I should say, uh, when when we talk about predestination, Catholics today sometimes think, well, predestination, that's Protestant. You know, that's the weird uh, people yeah. who knocked on my door or the the mean guy on Twitter, you know, who <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. But at this time in history, um, all Catholics believed in predestination, at least all the theologians, all the trained theologians. And they also believed in free will. So what they're trying to do is say, OK, God has decreed anyone who is saved is predestined. And, and nevertheless, people freely choose uh, salvation or they freely choose damnation. So this is a great mystery. How do we explain this? So the Thomas have this particular explanation. The Jesuits have their, their explanation. Um, and of course there are people in either camp that are not Dominicans and Jesuits. And to this day, this is not resolved in Catholic theology, right? There's different yeah, options and different right. theories. Yeah. Okay. Right. I mean, we honestly, we mostly just don't talk about it anymore, which is, <laughs> which is in and of itself an interesting yeah. phenomenon. And I think it's related to the Jansenist crisis. Okay. And we can maybe go into that later. But yeah. so the Jesuit perspective with Molina is, um, uh, you know, and he's he's a scholastic theologian, too. So he's thinking in the same category. So he says, OK, mm -hmm. God offers sufficient grace to everyone. And if they accept that grace, then the grace becomes efficient. Mm -hmm. OK, so that's a really important difference. And the Dominicans worry that this is kind of smuggling uh, 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 maybe a semi-Pelagian in. Yeah. Semi-Pelagianism is. And then. The Jesuits go, hey, what are you doing? We're dealing with Luther and Calvin, and you're telling everyone that, you know, God only gives yeah. efficient grace to some people. That's not different from Luther and Calvin. So there's this massive row, and eventually the Pope, um, the Pope kind of acts as a sort of referee. Mm -hmm. You know, the Popes weren't very um, proactive in their teaching at the time. They were more sort of yeah. Guardi guardians and referees and they and the, and the pope at the time basically says hey stop arguing you need to accept that that the molinists think differently and they're not heretics the dominicans <laughs> think differently and they're not heretics and that yeah. doesn't go over well with everyone so jansen's mm -hmm. coming out of this uh so cornelius jansen basically thinks you know the pope really should have condemned the jesuit position as heresy that's really semi-plagianism and this mm. is a strong motivation for what we now call Jansenism. Okay. So it's really connected to um, a reaction against uh, perceived sem semi-Pelagianism because they believe that even though grace is offered to all, it has to be accepted in order to be effective towards That's salvation. Right. And so there seems to be a smuggling in here of some kind of human agency apart from grace is the fear. Yes, it sounds exactly. Like. Okay. That's exactly okay. right. Yep. Yeah, it's always okay, good to be so, able to put these decades of debate into a couple sentences. But yeah, that, that's exact. That's exactly right. Okay. Um, all right. So maybe talk a little bit more about uh, Antoine uh, Arnaud or Arnold. Okay. Uh, who is who is this guy? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'm, well, I'm sorry. I, I I jumped. I jumped ahead. Cornelius Jansen first. Sorry yeah, about yeah, that. Yeah. yeah. No. No. No worries. Yeah. So basically, Jansenism. I would say. Um, there's really kind of three founders. So Jansen is is the, mm -hmm. the most important in the sense of the kind of textual trail. So Cornelius Jansen was yeah. a professor. He's actually a professor, I believe, of sacred scripture at Louvain. 
hmm. um, which at the time was in the, um, the the Spanish Netherlands. So he was actually a subject of the King of Spain. The King of Spain actually was the one who nominated him for the uh, for the Episcopal See of mm -hmm. Ypres that he eventually at the end of his life was was briefly a bishop but he was this brilliant academic um he was very concerned with uh he didn't like the jesuits he thought that they were on the wrong track for a number of reasons um mm -hmm. he loved reading the bible lecturing on the bible and then he got really obsessed with uh saint augustine because he thought okay what are the great heresies the great problems of my day are i'm living next door to all these calvinists Mm -hmm. who he saw as basically fatalist in, in, in some of their views of God's will and providence and, and, and how yeah. free will works. And then he said, also, I have these Jesuits that are actually, they're so overreacting to Calvinism that they're basically now they've resurrected this ancient heresy that we've, you know, we've sort of repeatedly condemned through the Pope's confirming St. Augustine's position against Pelagius or semi-Pelagian views, blah, 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 blah. So mm -hmm. he writes this massive book, called the Augustinus, Augustine. Um, and he does it kind of in collaboration and in conversation with a, a French um, priest named mm -hmm. Saint-Cyron. Um, mm -hmm. Saint Siren is what it looks like in English, Saint-Cyron. And Saint-Cyron is this brilliant uh, preacher and spiritual director. He's not as much of an academic. He's well-read, but uh, he's more of a kind of uh, on-the-ground pastoral uh, networker. Yeah. And he's linked in with these really, really devout, this very devout group of nuns who had reformed their convent outside of Paris, a place called Port Royal. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure we'll get into that later. But essentially, Jansen, um, he, he, he becomes bishop in 1636, dies in 1638. And then his massive tome, the Augustinos that he'd worked on for years and years, he claims that he read all of Augustine's works 10 times and all <laughs> wow. of Augustine's anti-Pelagian works 30 times. So the way that you wow. and I can quote I'm sure Star Wars or Lord of the Rings or whatever, you know, he <laughs> he could just quote from memory uh, Augustine. So he really believed I've got Augustine right. The church says Augustine is authoritative on these questions, at the very mm -hmm. least on these questions, if not on, on everything. Um, mm -hmm. So these Thomas that you come across on Twitter, that's what Jansen was like for Augustine. You know, he he all mm -hmm. he quoted was Augustine. Augustine's right about everything, that kind of thing. Um, mm -hmm. So anyway, he he dies uh, of the of the plague, actually, in 1638. His book is published posthumously, 1640. It immediately causes controversy. Rome censures it because it violated the peace of De Auxilius. So the, right. you, you had to have a special permission to publish on this question, but people ignored that. And at that time, the, the papal control was very much limited by where you lived. Mm -hmm. So if you lived in Rome, absolutely, you're not getting away with anything without papal permission but if you live in the spanish netherlands and the king of spain likes you you know you, yeah. you can you can get away with it so anyway augustine uh, excuse me uh jansen dies his book comes out and it plunges uh the theological world into controversy um and Saint-Seron is still around and he's he's with this network of nuns um mm -hmm. who look to jansen as this kind of holy man spiritual is, father yeah 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 absolutely yeah Saint-Seron first and foremost because he would preach retreats and he would hear their confessions but they knew he was linked with this sort of brilliant interpreter mm. of Augustine who they who they highly revered and these were very intelligent these were literate women uh mm. many of them read Latin um they all read and wrote in French um mm. so it's a there's many kind of layers to this you know socially and and uh, and culturally here yeah, uh, fascinating. So, yeah, Port Royal, uh, the Royal Port Abbey, 
uh, in, in France, uh, outside of Paris. Okay, so um, this figure, uh, Antoine Arnaud, when does he step in? Uh, what's his deal? So Antoine Arnaud is, is uh, kind of the leader of the second generation of Jansenists. So um, basically, what? so his, his oldest sister, Angelique Arnaud, is the abbess of Port Royal. Okay. So, so it's kind of in the family. Um, Pas- Blaise Pascal is connected with it. His niece is one of the nuns, uh, Jacqueline mm-hmm. Pascal, who was very, very devoted to Jansen and Saint-Saron. So you have this kind of network of, of intellectuals, women religious, priests who are identifying as um, they would call themselves disciples of St. Augustine or friends of the truth. Um, so I'll do this with my, so my students will sometimes be like, you know, my theology students, I'll say, Oh, are you a, are you a Thomist or are you a, yeah. you know, a, a racehorse man or what? And I'll go, or oh, Franciscan. I'm, I, yeah. I'm a friend of the truth. You know? <laughs> so, so it can become this very, but it sort of, it, in some way it sort of highlights a kind of arrogance as well. Right. It's like, well, mm-hmm. I'm just, I'm just right. You know, uh, so yeah. you, you do get a, you do get an elitism for sure at the, mm-hmm. at the earliest stages of this, whatever we want to call it, movement or network. Um, anyway, it, when Jansen, what's the right chronology here? The Pope eventually condemns five propositions from Jansen's book, allegedly from Jansen's book. And this causes a massive crisis. Um, The king of France is really the one who wants the condemnation because he's he doesn't like people arguing about theology. Remember, he's dealing with a Protestant minority. He's dealing with a Huguenot minority. He's Mm -hmm. what we now would call an absolutist. Um, he just wants everyone to uh, agree about religion and then do what he tells them about who you know <laughs> who to conquer. Yeah. And, and what all what that. king was this again? At this the time? is Louis the Fourteenth. This is a the, young okay. Louis the Fourteenth. So the, yeah. the Sun King. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, so Jansen's book is condemned, uh, or five propositions from it, and Antoine Arnaud kind of steps into the breach as the new leader because Jansen's dead. Sanseron is at the end of his life and Cardinal Richelieu had put him in jail and he wasn't in good health. So the real kind of torchbearer is Antoine Arnaud, the youngest brother of Angelique Arnaud. It's a massive family. They also had a bishop, a couple other nuns in the family. Wow. It was like something like 13, 14 kids. Uh, so he's known as uh, Le Croyant d'Arnaud, the great Arnaud. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant theologian, also a philosopher, a Cartesian uh, philosopher. Um and he writes a, well, there's two really important things he does. He writes a book called On Frequent Communion, mm. um, which is another facet of this problem because connected with the issues of, of predestination and, and grace is the, is the question of confession. And that is another unresolved issue, I think, in Catholic theology, or at least in sacramental practice. What is mm-hmm. the right practice around denying communion or when you should receive and how often and things like that? Right. Um, so he writes this book uh, on frequent communion that inflames the controversy with the Jesuits. The Jesuits are very much pushing more frequent communion and they will absolve you. The key difference is the Jesuit position and the more sort of, I don't know what laxist is what its opponents call it, is mm-hmm. all you need for absolution is attrition. So you mm-hmm. can go in, you can go into the confession and say, Father, I um you know, say you're a, a, a stable boy, and you're like, Father, I keep meeting the shepherd girl in the woods and we keep having sex and I, I need to repent of this because I want to receive communion. Yeah. And then the, so the Jesuit priest would say, look, this is wrong. Uh, do you recognize it's wrong? And you say, yes, yeah. I'm, I'm afraid of going to hell or I'm afraid of getting fired or the, <laughs> the, the girl's father finding yeah. us. And, and yeah. they'll absolve you on the basis that you're, you're afraid of punishment. So no um, firm purpose of amendment. Well, 
this is where it gets dicey. So okay, yeah. What technically, what a good Jesuit confessor would would have said is, um, you're coming because you're a your 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 fear of God's justice, God's judgment is a first step towards repentance and love of God, and we can work with that. And you 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 have to firmly amend, but then of course the the Jansenist critique would be, well, they're not firmly amending. They're yeah. coming back the next Saturday at four between Same four four forty five yeah. or whatever whatever <laughs> it was. I don't know. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. attrition basically is because I am afraid of punishment, God's divine wrath. I want to be absolved. Okay, mm. and the Jesuit would say that's a first step towards love, and I can work with that. So that's yeah. the sympathetic interpretation. The, J- the Jansenist confessor or the, the rigorist confessor, the Augustinian confessor would say, you need to, everyone's afraid of punishment. Even demons are afraid of punishment. What mm-hmm. you, ne- you need to be here because you love God, because you love the person you send against or the, or the person you send with, and mm-hmm. you love God. That's why you confess. And if you're not there, you need to go and do penance and come back. Okay. So the Jesuit would say, yeah. why are you throwing a kid out of confession? Absolve the kid receiving communion means they will be fortified by grace mm, to sin less. And the Jansen says, no, this is sacrilege. This kid's coming every week. He's doing the same thing. Anyway, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 no. That's fascinating. So it sounds more like the difference between perfect and imperfect contrition. Yeah, that's um, that. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Cause I mean, it yeah. kind of reminds me of, I mean, the very structure of, of the scriptures, which is you have the kind of uh, the vassalage covenant idea of you're doing things because the law requires you to do it. And then you have the new covenant idea, yeah, which is you right. do it because of the spirit of sonship. Yep. But in, yep. in the in the church, you kind of have all of these layers of scripture, you know, part of the structure of the of of society. So yep, it, absolutely. So in that case, I would kind of agree with the Jans, uh, not the Jansenist, the Jesuit here. But anyway, okay, makes sense. Well, the um, Je- I mean, the Jesuits definitely won that debate as far as yeah, you know, because and I and when I would teach this with students, they would usually sort of grasp onto this way more than the the, the divine grace stuff they were like whoa i've never i only <laughs> yeah. just heard some calvinists say that one time on the internet i didn't even know that was a debate but with this mm-hmm. you know we we still kind of think about this and we talk about this and we feel bad if oh i'm in confession every week it's the same stuff am i really yeah. ha- mm-hmm. how sincere is my amendment so i think because we can existentially connect with this question way better than election physical yeah. pre-motion all that kind of stuff um so yeah. Basically, what happens is that the French, the powers that be in France don't like this, what they see as an extreme rigorism. And they think that it is causing this sort of sect of um, people that aren't very good for the state. Um, you know, it's causing these young men to leave their careers as lawyers and go live in the woods outside Port Royal, reading Augustine yeah. all day and gardening, you know, <laughs> and, stuff. And, yeah. and, and, and the Jansenists saw it as we're creating this kind of pure Jerusalem. Mm. Um, so again, we, we deal with this with, you know, really intense traditionalist or really intense charismatic communities who, who want mm-hmm. a kind of separation from the world. All of these spiritual, social impulses mm-hmm. are still with us. So anyway, Antoine Arnaud yeah. becomes the main leader. Um, he has that really important book on, on communion and he argues you should delay absolution until a person has a firm amendment or sorry, has a, has a, has a perfect contrition. I am here because I love God, not because I'm afraid that my boss is going to find out I stole from him or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, he's kicked out of the Sorbonne, which is the, the preeminent theology faculty in, in France. It's in Paris. Um, and, uh, 
what in the second there was what, what was second thing I was going to bring up. I mean, Arnaud's career is he he lives until 1694. He's one of the most important uh, uh, Catholics of 17th century France. There was a second theme I was. Oh, yes. The distinction. Another important element here is just a distinction between fact and right is made. So when the Pope condemns these five propositions from Jansen's book, the Jansenists are in crisis or the supporters of Jansen are in crisis. So yeah. Antoine Arnaud comes up with this idea and he says, OK, we respect papal authority to condemn false doctrine. Um, we accept that the Pope has condemned five false ideas, but they're they're false in the sense it, it, when interpreted falsely, <laughs> not when interpreted. <laughs> so he basically says yeah. there is a Calvinist interpretation of these five propositions that is wrong. Mm -hmm. But there's also an Augustinian interpretation. Mm -hmm. that is not wrong yeah uh and he would all and he also claims these propositions are actually not in the book yeah. so that so there's the pope is right about the about his right to condemn but the fact of whether they're in the book is not true yeah. so for so for example if you wrote a book and the cdf said this guy's getting too popular and now these seminarians are reading this guy dom's book yeah. and it's heretical and they and they they say Dom's ideas are X, Y, Z. And you go, well, that's not my idea. I don't accept that. Right. So that, that would be like a, a, a fact, right. Distinction. Yeah. That's a fair distinction. I think. Yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> no, <laughs> well, I mean, I agree with you, but the not, papacy, not that, the papacy not that you shouldn't like it. Yeah. Not that you should disobey, <laughs> but it's uh, in theory, it's, it's fair. Okay. Um, yeah. The idea yeah. was that the, the church could be in could infallibly judge doctrine, but not facts. Yeah. Oh, it's hmm. infallible when it says author X said fact. I y. see. I see. Okay. It makes sense. Yeah. So, okay. This so goes on and on and on, but we don't need to get sidetracked on it. Yeah. No, it does all the time, all the time. Uh, okay. So let's maybe, so how would we put in a nutshell what Jansenism is? Maybe we can get into the, the metaphysics more, uh, you know, grace, free will and stuff like that. Take it wherever you'd like. I just want to learn. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, so at this point, so we're we're now, let's say we're around 1700 AD. Okay. Uh, so Jansen's dead. The first generation of all the nuns are dead. And there's a second generation with Antoine Arnaud. A guy named Pasquier KNL becomes really important. I would say at this point, it's a it's a group or it's a network. Or I hate to be so like hair splitting or it's a tendency because it kind of depends on who you're talking about and when and where, but it's, it's a phenomenon. I love that word. Cause it just means thing. <laughs> you know, like, it's a phenomenon. It's, yeah. it's an extreme Augustinian tendency towards sacramental discipline, towards views of divine grace. It takes on a kind of sectarian like ethos in, especially in France it has a subtle uh, resistance of papal and royal authority that becomes okay. not subtle at all in the 18th century, but is yeah. originally, I think, uh, more subtle. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's, I think it's more helpful to talk about it as like a, a set of orientations and trends rather than a distinct idea. Because okay. like today we're like, predestination, I don't like that. But at mm -hmm. the time, even a Molinist would say, I believe in predestination. I just think God predestined Dom with the foreknowledge that Dom would accept. Right. So, so, so everyone agrees that predestination is a thing. Everyone yeah. agrees that the elect are saved. So obviously there are certain ideas Jansen has held, which were condemned. But then you get into this 
all this complication of holding something in an Augustinian or a Calvinist sense, the true sense of Augustine, all that kind of stuff. So I think it's more helpful to say there's a set of a set of tendencies and attitudes that gets called okay. Jansenism. Um, so it's similar to modernism in that sense, right? It's like this umbrella mm-hmm. term and it's a question of kind of ten- there's some people that you can go, yeah, okay, clearly Alfred Loessy yeah. and George Chill are modernists. But then there's yeah. a whole range of people where it's like modernist mm-hmm. tendency. Are they owning it? But in order to deconstruct it, et cetera. So Makes I, hope a lot that's, of sense. I hope that's not too vague. My students would get really mad when I wouldn't just like clearly define. Well, I know. think that's really the point, right? Is that sometimes it's, you know, the fact that it's hard to define, it makes it easy to weaponize actually. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, because if you don't like someone, well, you're, you're a Jansenist. Or, exactly. Or you're a modernist. Yeah. And the, the Pope in 1694, I think it was Innocent Twelfth, actually wrote a, a brief, like an official papal letter to the bishops in the Spanish ne- Netherlands saying, you are not to accuse someone of Jansenism unless it's publicly manifestly clear on the basis of the five propositions. So, mm-hmm. so you couldn't say, Oh, the confessor at the church at blah, blah, blah is a Jansenist just because you heard he was, you know, denying people absolution or whatever. Right. Um, Cause it, it, it immediately got weaponized. There's a famous incident yeah. where a Cardinal, a Benedictine Cardinal in Rome is arguing with the general of the Jesuits. And he says, uh, you know, it basically the end of the it's like a kind of joke anecdote but it, at the end he basically says okay so everyone who hates a jesuit then is a jansenist and then he goes that's an infinite number of people and then the superior yeah. of the of the jesuits you know they, they were friends but uh, yeah. <laughs> it, it got it got to be that kind of vibe you know if you're right mm-hmm. of me you're a trad if you're left of me you're a modernist you know it's the same yeah same type of dynamic makes sense yeah yeah and so and how do you navigate those waters okay let's maybe see how this unfolds so um so this is, you know, broad. So, you know, we have the, this period from uh, 1690 uh, mm-hmm. all the way to 1800, you know. And so from the death of Antoine, uh, you know, and, no, and, and, yeah. and involved here is uh, the Synod of Pistoia, which we're going to talk about, and also mm-hmm. the French Revolution. So could you unpack that era and, and try to help us make sense of what's happening here? Yeah, sure, sure. So the – okay, so we have Jansen and Saint-Seran and the nuns of Port Royal. That's generation one. Generation mm-hmm. two, you have Antoine Arnaud. He dies in 1694 in exile in um, uh, the Low Countries, Belgium. And his mm-hmm. successor is a guy named Pasquier Canel. And Canel is an ex-oratorian um, who is called the Elisha of Arnaud. So like the kind, you know, Arnaud is oh, Elijah and and Canel. And, and they, they were developing a really kind of a kind of in language of we are the preservers of the truth. We're kind of the... the kind of a church within a church thing, which I think was yeah. really dangerous and ultimately was their undoing. Uh, but Canel is a brilliant um, theologian, biblical commentator, and he writes a really popular book called um, Moral Reflections on the New Testament is how we translate it, Afflictions Morale. Um, and this book becomes symbolic of a kind of uh, Jansenist alternative spirituality and theological world. It's not just issues of divine grace. It's also liturgy, uh, Bible Mm. reading, um, even some ecclesiological issues, because this is the time of the kind of the the four Gallican articles were declared by the assembly of the French clergy in 1682. That was kind of a rebuke of what we now call ultramontanism. Um, and, and Jansenists really latch onto that. Um, it was their honest belief, but it was also a shield, of course, against uh, against papal interference. Wait, wait. 
Jansenists were Gallicans, is, is what you're saying. Yes. So okay. not all Gallicans were Jansenists. In okay. fact, a great many of them were not. But all Jansenists would have said the basic Gallican perspective is correct. Okay. Vis-a-vis uh, -vis the papacy. Yeah. And, and for, for the audience, could you maybe help us understand better this Gallicanism versus Ultramontanism dispute? Yeah, sure. So um, it really goes back to the late Middle Ages, which we, of course, don't have time to talk about, but the, the conciliarist yeah. uh, era and everything. But essentially, the Gallican, um, the, the, in, in 1682, the, uh, under the leadership of, of King Louis XIV and Bishop Bosway, Bishop Bosway was, is, yeah. is actually a brilliant uh I've read some of his writing. stuff when I was younger. Yeah, it's uh, quite beautiful, actually. Yeah, he, uh, yeah, he, he was the, they, they say he was the greatest preacher of his era. Yeah. Um, and he was obviously a brilliant writer as well. And his memory, mm -hmm. interestingly, has survived the Gallican, because there was, of course, a very harsh backlash against Gallicanism. But Bosway, in many ways, I think people just enjoyed his writing so much that they yeah. kept reading him, just like Pascal yeah. with Jansenism. Same, yeah, Pascal, yeah. Um, let me just look at, so I have in Denzinger here the, um, the Gallican articles. So okay. basically article number one says, um, Kings and princes are not subject to ecclesiastical power and temporal affairs, nor can they be deposed by the authority of the keys, meaning the papacy. Okay. So this is like basically the original Boniface, the eighth first Philip, the fourth dispute. Yes. Um, Unam Sanctum being that, that exactly. bull that, set its foot on that. Okay. Okay. Exactly right. Yeah. So the French never accepted that. They never received that bull as valid. And um, honestly, they, the, a lot of people around Europe would have denied the deposing power. Um, really? The lines between ultramontanism and conciliarism were very blurry, sort of depending on the question. Um, so you would have Germans who would, who would concur with papal infallibility, but in doctrine, and they would yeah. not accept the deposing power, that sort of thing. Gotcha. Um, the second is uh, basically the Pope is not above the ecumenical council. Um, mm. So the decrees of Constance are, are valid and binding in okay. perpetuity. Um, number three is the canons of the Gallican church are sacrosanct. So basically um each local church has a kind of ecclesiastical and legal heritage and the pope's job is only to intervene when there's like some sort of abuse or problem so okay. the pope doesn't have kind of jurisdiction over the traditions of the local churches which would okay. come in very handy today for people who don't like who don't yes, like yes. meddling in uh um, yeah. question of discipline and then the fourth one is really important for vatican one the fourth one is um in questions of faith, the Roman pontiff has the principal part. So he, he's more authoritative than any other bishop. However, um, his judgment is not unalterable, is what this translation says. The Latin is irreformable, which is what Vatican, yeah. or sorry, Vatican I says, irreformabile esse, judicium yes. nisi. So nevertheless, his judgment is not unalterable unless the consent of the church is added. Consensus Ecclesiae. So this is nullified by Vatican I. Vatican, and that, yeah. was, that was the really uh, ten, con contentious issue between the conciliar, the the moderate remaining conciliarists of Vatican I and the Ultramontanists. So this yeah. is a very public uh, declaration of kind of 
hey, this this is how we do things in France. Stop mm-hmm. in, uh, meddling. Um, yeah. And the, and the funny thing is, Louis the Fourteenth is all in favor of this, but when he wants Jansen is condemned. He says, "Oh, why are you? You don't need a parliament to look at all that. You know, just accept yeah, yeah. this is your this is blessed Peter. You know, so Louis the <laughs> Fourteenth yeah. is a bad act. Is the bad actor in this? The Pope yeah. really believed in his perspective, and the Jansenists really believed in theirs. But you know, you have a philandering, uh, you know, mm-hmm. uh, power hungry king who is will hop Definitely. back and forth. You know, yeah. Okay, I kind I kind of got you off track. So uh, bringing us back to." uh the 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 jansenist uh era here um right sure okay yeah. yeah sorry that was a big digression but i do think no, it's, it's good a, it's, it's necessary to understand kind of what happens next so the the jansenism is still a thing despite everything that louis the 14th has done and all the help he's gotten from the from the papacy so mm-hmm. he's getting towards the end of his life um he really wants to consolidate power in france um, and he, so he actually, dis- he physically destroys the convent of Port Royal. He rounds up all the nuns and ships them off to various other convents where they're unfortunately, in many cases, treated very, very poorly, mm. uh, deprived of the sacraments, etc. Um, and he physically destroys Port Royal. He disinters all the graves cause he doesn't want there to be a kind of relic industry mm. there. And it's, it's really a, a, a sad chapter in church history. And then he petitions the Pope, who at this point is Clement XI, to condemn this book by Canel. So Pasquier Canel, the successor of Arnaud, uh, writes this biblical commentary, which uh, my friend Rick Yoder and I are, have this anthology of Jansenist texts coming out. And our other colleague, John Minert, has translated part of Canel's uh, writing, Commentary on the Gospel of John. It's actually really beautiful. So he condemns 101 propositions taken from this um book and they're taken verbatim so this is this is to not have a repetition of the jansen fiasco where people say it's not really in the book or it's not really what he meant um mm. so the bull unigenitus um only begotten in 1713 mm-hmm. condemns 101 propositions from Cano's book um and they're verbatim but the condemnations are listed at the very end so the condemnations at the end this is Denzinger 2502. Um, after listing all 101 propositions, the bowl continues. We declare, condemn, reject the preceding propositions as the case may be. And then it lists all the possible censures. False. My favorite is offensive to pious ears. Yeah. Um, <laughs> pernicious, rash, and then going all the way up to her- her- erroneous, heretical, et cetera. But it doesn't assign the condemnations to each proposition. Um, so that now you have decades more of you know, debate and fighting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and fighting about that. But Unigenitus is the most important um, ecclesial rift in, in 18th century Catholicism until the suppression of the Jesuits in 1773, although it's very much connected with that. Um, okay. So that's the next chapter of the story is Unigenitus. Okay. Fascinating. So, <clears throat> so uh, Unigenitus is basically the, official stamp of uh jansenism is a no-go from now on um by the the holy see well yeah so the holy see would basically say canel is the successor of jansen we already condemned jansen now we're condemning canel okay stop reading this stuff stop talking about this stuff uh okay our apostolic authority has made clear this is a no-go okay um but and that just led to more debate (laughs) 
Yeah, of course. Uh, okay, so uh, Pistoia is is after the revolution. No, Pistoia is right before the revolution, right? Pistoia is right before the revolution. Yep. Okay, so let, yep. let's maybe um, you know at your pace. Fast transition. forward. Yeah, up to you. Yeah, uh, up to Pistoia. Yeah. Okay, so we're, we're we're skipping over a lot, but maybe we'll 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 talk another time. And um, there's a number of fascinating kind of ways that this all plays out. Mm-hmm. Um, but if, essentially what happens is in, in France, um, you get something of a, of a ceasefire. There's a fi- there's a, a major controversy in the 1750s over denying communion to suspected Jansenists and the Pope at the time, who I think is one of the greatest popes in history, Benedict the 14th, he comes mm. down and says, unless someone is publicly manifestly and repeatedly denying the authority of their Bishop or the Pope don't deny them communion. And so that really yeah. helps to be something of a peace in France in the 1750s. The problem is by that time, Jansenism was becoming a kind of Europe, Europe-wide phenomenon um, Well, the problem from the perspective of the papacy. So you get Jansenist sort of sympathizers. Um, we, you could say in English, philo-Jansenist. So the Italian historians call these philo-Jansenisti, like, you know, we say I'm, I'm philo uh, whatever, yeah. you know, in favor of whatever. So Europe yeah. is splitting European Catholicism and in the Americas and overseas is splitting into kind of Philo Jesuit. So mm-hmm. Philo Jesuit pro papal and mm-hmm. kind of Philo Jansenist pro Gallicanism uh, type. Yeah, of, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Pro yeah. kind of royalist. Uh, some people call it regalism. Mm. Um, so like the, the the Church of France is a is a state church that has its autonomous jurisdiction, yeah. et cetera. So that's a, a, a rift that Pope Benedict the Fourteenth really does a, a, an excellent job of of not letting that rip the church apart. But his successor Clement the Thirteenth does not do as good of a yeah. job and makes a couple of really bad blunders, and it blows up. And then his successor is essentially forced to dissolve the Jesuit order in seventeen seventy three. Um, okay. Why, uh, why the Jesuit? (laughs) Well, (laughs) the problem is, the problem is, uh, we could, we could, uh, we could talk about that for the whole time. Well, I'll just say, Uh, I'll just say in brief, the Jesuit order was seen as, um, it, they, they made a number of enemies for a number Mm -hmm. of different reasons. Um, they were by far the most, well, I've got to be careful of Dominicans are listening or, but they were by far the most dynamic religious order. They were all over the world. They educated Mm -hmm. a huge amount of the future generation, not just the wealthy. They, they also educated the poor in many cases. So they did a lot of really good things, but they were seen by uh, sovereigns and princes as a potential fifth column in society because they reported to a Roman superior. They could get moved around. They weren't under Episcopal jurisdiction and they maintained ultramontane theories. They would usually temper them if they were in France. So you get a kind of accommodation to Gallicanism to some extent. But they were the ones that were like the papal claims in Unum Sanctum are basically the way it ought to be. It just isn't. You know, it's not it's not pragmatic or prudential, but they would hold to a really, really high kind of ultramontane ecclesiology. And that is not going to win you friends in and Late that's been a, yeah, that's been essential to the Jesuit order from its very inception. Exactly, because uh, they took yeah. oaths of, of fidelity to the Pope when they started their order. Yeah, that's okay. right. So in France, when they're suppressed, they the the parliaments they have all these regional parliaments. The parliaments argue on the basis of the Constitution of the Jesuits 
they are a, a problem and irreformable and they have to be suppressed, whereas it went down differently in different places. But in 1773, Pope Clement XIV, who was a Franciscan, Ganganelli was his name, he suppresses the entire Jesuit order, but he was essentially, he, was, he really had no choice at that point. Okay, makes sense. Um, so the general, the superior general of the Jesuits at the time is a man named Ricci. Mm-hmm. And he is the grand uncle of a young, very intelligent, very energetic Italian priest named Scipione de Ricci. Scipione de Ricci goes to Rome as a young man, and he and he's in the circles of all these Philo Jansenists. So there's a couple of cardinals. There's some uh, the uh, head of the Vatican Library. There's a lot of intellectuals. They're usually antiquarians. They love reading the Church Fathers. Uh, love obviously Saint Augustine. Very anti-Jesuit. Mm-hmm. They have a polemic against sort of superstition, bigotry, fanaticism. So you have an interesting overlap with what we call Catholic Enlightenment, um, hmm. which is ironic because the Jansenists were so they had such a pessimistic anthropology. And yet on certain questions, they were very much in line with the sort of Catholic Enlightenment. So they're anti-scholastic. They're anti-Thomist. They want a, a what they call positive theology, which is theology directly based on scripture and the church fathers. So what we would call resourcement today. Yeah. Um, now, now not, not, not the same as, you know, cause we have Thomas resourcement, but they are right. anti anti Thomistic back to right. the fathers. Go ahead. So, sorry. Sorry to, sorry to interrupt you. I'm just, I'm so fascinated. It sounds like there's just too much to talk about, but um, yeah. <laughs> so well, it's my fault because I go off on tangents because it's totally I, fine. Yeah. I, I um, find this era so fascinating. Yeah. So, but you're saying that there's a bunch of Philo Jansenists in Rome. Right. Uh, how does that work? Because they're supposed to be against ultramontanism, right? Yeah. Yeah. Good. Great question. So, um, the, uh, in Italy, there would be sympathizers of Jansenists that are not, they're not really, they're more anti Jesuit than they are anti papal. Okay. So, what, what they want is they want the right Pope in the 1740s and 50s. So mm-hmm. they think they think papal claims are exaggerated, but they're not they're, they're, they don't they don't hate the papacy by any stretch. No, mm-hmm. none of these people hate the papacy. They think right. the papacy is de jure divino founded by Jesus and yet they think it's far exceeded its brief. So mm-hmm. it's a lot like today for some folks. Um mm-hmm. but uh they're not um I mean, it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for the papacy and uh, it causes it causes a huge rift. Um, Okay, but it's a it's a time the 1740s and 50s are a time of kind of sifting through a a lot of dynamic tension. And then it really gets polarized after the suppression in 1773. Okay, and then then you have really aggressive uh, anti ultramontanism. So, yeah, essentially Gallicanism all around Europe, Spain, Portugal, the Holy Roman empire. It's not just France. Um, What I, what I find fascinating is there's these, all these different combinations of, for example, resource small on one side, uh, but Gallicanism hand in hand with it or ultramontanism. And, and yet, you know, um, a kind of scholasticism. And and today things are kind of in different combinations. Absolutely. Exactly. Right. Fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's very perceptive of you. I I keep wanting to write. I haven't had time to write this, but I wanted to write something on how contemporary Catholic general theological orientation that you'd get in a seminary uh, or a Roman uh, Mm -hmm. uh, 
maybe in the Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith, is a, is a combination of things that in the 18th century would be Philo-Jesuit and mm-hmm. Philo-Jansenist. And I find that actually really hopeful because because today when I disagree, you know, and I look at people I disagree with and I think, gosh, I can't put they're completely wrong about all these things. And then I and then I go, oh, hold on a second. No single 18th century figure we look at now and agree completely with their perspective. There's truth in both of these camps, if you will. Mm -hmm. And the people I really admire are people like Benedict the 14th and his his close friend, uh, Italian. um, priest and historian named Ludovico Muratori because they tried to mediate between these two groups and they did a really good job. And after their death in the 1750s, things really polarized. And so that's a call for dialogue, irenicism, assuming the best of people, because, you know, you may learn something, you may temper your own, maybe you've gone too far in one direction. So that's, I think that's a very perceptive uh, point that you've made. Okay. Um, so uh, continuing with the Pistoia narrative, because I'm very interested in this. You said he was, uh, Ricci was a Jesuit. Is that what you said? Sorry, the the Bishop Scipione de Ricci is, okay. the, is the great nephew of the last superior general of the Jesuits. So okay. these divisions were even within families. Okay. And that's, so these, these people knew each other. So uh, okay. that, that's why I bring that up. Uh, okay. I can't remember the name of the Jesuit. I think his name was Lorenzo Ricci. He's famous as being the last superior general before the suppression. And sadly, okay. he was imprisoned in Castel Sant'Angelo and died in prison. So it's a very mm. sad story. But his great nephew, uh, Scipione de Ricci, was this young, intelligent, wealthy um, Philo Jansenist priest, Philo Jansenist. Yeah. And he becomes radically Jansenist when he spends time in Rome, which okay. is, again, ironic. Um, yeah. And his <laughs> his perspective is basically that uh, I think he hit it effectively until he was made bishop but he really thinks that rome has completely gone off the rails doctrinally into a philo jesuitism and that Mm. it's his job and his friends to 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 radically correct uh the catholic theological and ecclesiastical world so he he has a a very serious plan he has an international network um partly linked with the church of utrecht who had been excommunicated by the papacy um for a a complex thing, but they were a kind of hotbed of Jansenist exiles. They start pouring Jansenist texts into Italy. So Ricci Mm -hmm. and his friends are translating all this French stuff into Italian, distributing it to parish priests. So there's a real Italian Jansenist movement in the 1770s and 1780s. So that's the origins of the, of the Senate of Pistoia. Okay. Okay. So, okay. Origins make sense. Now, what did this Senate teach? And uh, what was the reaction of Rome? So uh, Ricci is named Bishop of, uh, at this time, the, the Tuscany is a state, uh, you know, because Italy is not a country yet. Mm-hmm. So Tuscany with the capital in Florence is ruled by the Austrian emperor's younger brother. His name is Peter Leopold. This, these are the older brothers of Marie Antoinette. Oh. <laughs> um, hmm. So Peter Leopold, young, energetic, um, intense, confident. Uh, he wants to reform the church, wants to modernize the state, modernize the economy, all these different things. His mother, Maria Theresia, had really gotten into these kind of reformist Catholic sources. So he was raised on this kind of Philo Jansenist perspective. 
uh, didn't come to his sexual life. He wasn't rigorous about his sexual life, apparently, but <laughs> he was very rigorous about priests and other people's yeah. lives, yeah. Uh, unfortunately. Um, but uh, he really likes Ricci, so he convinces the Pope to um, not veto, essentially. So the Grand Duke appoints, but the Pope has the right to veto. He convinces the Pope not to veto. Ricci becomes Bishop of Pistoia, which is a town outside of Florence. He's technically Bishop of the United See, Pistoia and Prato, which are both small, small-ish towns outside mm -hmm. Florence, um, would both have beautiful cathedrals, uh, you know, kind of Renaissance, amazing. Um, they're like little mini Florences, really. Anyway, mm -hmm. Ricci starts this very, very radical, intense reform. Uh, he suppresses devotion to the Sacred Heart, which antagonizes uh, the new Pope, uh, Pius VI. Um, he really... Because of uh, Nestorian fears. Well, yes, they, they're afraid. The original critique was that the Sacred Heart was potentially Nestorian mm -hmm. by positing a separation between the physical heart of Jesus apart from the body or something like that. Okay. okay. But it became a symbol of the Jesuits and it was promoted uh, by the Jesuits. So it was a kind of a why. nasty, um, totally effacing the memory of the Jesuits and, and I see. Uh, the, all the problems we have are ultimately their fault. And that's why the people are superstitious and they don't read the Bible and it's because of the Jesuits. And it was really a, you know, there yeah. were valid critiques of Jesuits, but they, they were, they were, these people were really fanatics and their yeah. bitterness blinded them, I think, to all the good things that, that the Makes Jesuits sense. and the Franciscans were doing. So anyway, yeah. he, he antagonizes all these people. He does do some really, really great things. Um, he encourages Bible reading he uh, he systematizes the way the parishes work in a much more equitable way. He raises the education of the priests. So, there, you know, like all these things, it's a real combination of good and bad. In yeah. 1786, he decides with the permission of the Grand Duke to have a diocesan synod. And the goals of the synod are really way beyond what a diocesan synod would ever need to do. It's really kind of like a rerun of the Council of Trent. And it's a mm. sort of test reform for the whole church. So what they're mm. hoping happens is the Synod of Pistoia gets imitated by the Synod of Florence and then the Synod of Bologna and then the Synod of Milan and then boom, all the way to Portugal, Hungary, the New World. So they want this radical Gallican Jansenist reform of the entire Catholic Church, which would ultimately force the papacy back into its proper confines as the sort of guardian of the canons, the uh, last court of appeal, elder brother amongst brothers, that kind of deal. So yeah. they, they have a series, I actually have all the, I bought the decrees, or rather I should say my, my very sweet wife bought me this for Christmas, which is probably the strangest uh, Christmas present uh, <laughs> anyone's ever asked for, but the, all the decrees of the Synod of Pistoia. So you couldn't possibly deliberate about this in eight days. Yeah. You know, so obviously this was pre-prepared theological yeah. material from uh, Ricci and his circle of theologians. Um, and this causes an absolute uproar in Europe uh, when the news of what Ricci is doing pro and con. Um, uh, so anyway, I, I, I don't know how much detail we can go into about the synod itself, but. <laughs> um, well, maybe point out uh, some of the good and the bad, and then we can tie that into uh, and also may, maybe mention the French Revolution. And then we can tie that into the Second Vatican Council uh, sure, as, a good, right. as a good way to cap off the uh, this conversation. Yeah, sure. So I would say the Synod, um, the bad things, I wrote up a list 
uh, so it needlessly antagonized Rome um, and the and the Pope. Um, needlessly antagonized the mendicant orders. So Ricci wanted all the religious orders to combine into one order under the rule of Saint Benedict. Mm. Um, so it was a kind of primitivist understanding that this is okay, but we shouldn't have Franciscans, Dominicans, yeah, all these, you know. And he had some good critiques, but this is. Still totally kind of yeah, yeah and it's totally unilateral and and it would it was never going to work even if it was a good idea um yeah. he advocated an unrealistic amount of change so too much too soon especially regarding the people's devotional life so most of these people are illiterate so encouraging bible reading is a really good thing um but a lot of these people can't read the bible and their connection to the faith is images and candles and processions and he started really kind of marginalizing all of this is this may, maybe sound familiar for post Vatican, mm -hmm. some post Vatican II type stuff. Yeah. He yeah. cast doubt on the veracity of relics, um, which is a tricky matter because, you know, you want to be venerating true relics. On the other hand, you don't want to be sort of spoiling everyone's cherished devotions. Yeah. So it's, that's a kind yeah. of, you know, he's doing a lot of stuff that's ambiguous in Trent. Like a lot of this is unresolved Tridentine reform. Trent says remove false relics. But the way that was interpreted was like manifestly mm. false. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, <laughs> we're, we're not going to dig too much about how old this, you yeah. know, arm bone of St. Andrew <laughs> is or whatever it might be. You know, so he he yeah. he just went full steam ahead and bulldozed and really, I think, offended a lot of good people who otherwise might have been on board. Uh, mm. It reads very arrogantly. The Synod documents read arrogantly in places. And I think there's an excessive trust in the sovereign and in the state to enact mm. reforms that are basically ecclesial because they're so alienated from the papacy yes. that they end up, they end up making a deal with the devil, so to speak. I mean, yeah. Mm -hmm. Leopold wasn't the devil, but he, this, you know, <laughs> yeah. trust not in princes. It says in, in the scripture, you know, and, and I, I think that's yeah. something that they didn't take to heart. So yeah. as far as good things, there's some really beautiful Christocentric passages there's some really amazing stuff from that is ultimately comes from kind of the French spiritual school, uh, Beirut, Pascal, stuff like that. Um, there's a real emphasis on the Bible, the importance of the Bible. There's a liturgical reform that at least I think in many cases was a lot of what they were doing was good. Um, you know, the priest mm -hmm. would pronounce the canon out loud. They would read the Bible and they would chant the scripture in Latin and then they would go up and read it in Italian, which was not always happening before this, in fact, yeah. but mm -hmm. would be completely normal in a Latin mass today. Um, yeah. So the, the mass that they're looking for is similar, I think, to like the it's kind of like a Novus Ordo Latin. Yeah, makes that's kind of that's kind of the vibe. If you were in a very sort of stripped down church. So they also did stuff like said, no flowers on the altar, which just pissed people off. And was just, yeah, on, <laughs> they're trying to say the focus is on the Eucharist. The focus is on the Eucharist. But then they end up being yeah. kind of, you know, spoil sports, I guess. Um, mm -hmm. The reorganization of the parishes was actually a lasting reform in, in this diocese mm. that was effective. Um, I think there was a fearlessness in confronting corruption and admitting mistakes which is the maybe the flip side of the rashness. Um, mm -hmm. They had an idea of religious liberty. So Peter Leopold had expelled the Inquisition from Tuscany, and they mm -hmm. um, had, had this idea of you have to reason with heretics and you have to love heretics. And so they have some things that I think are maybe forerunners of Dignitatis Humanae. 
Um, their attitude towards Protestants was what you might call proto-ecumenical. So they called Protestants uh, fratelli separati, separated brethren. Really? Or okay. fratelli uh, traviati, wandering brethren, mm -hmm. brethren who are led astray, but still brethren. Um, mm -hmm. And there were there were non-Jansenists who used this language too, but it's just a positive right. thing that, um, that yeah. these people did. Um, so it's a mix of good and bad, but they uh, th there was no chance of this succeeding without um, the powers that be in Europe actively protecting it and marginalizing the papacy. And if you're trying to reform the church, that is a deal with the devil, ultimately. Yeah, um, yeah. So that's ultimately their, their undoing, I think. Ironically, it does kind of seem to come down once again to Roman approval. So, yeah. um, so which is interesting. Um, fascinating. What about collegiality? Anything there? They, they certainly. I mean, the flip side of the positive other end of the coin from the ultramontanism is collegiality, in the sense that they had a patristic understanding of the the the, the Catholic Church is a, is a federation of churches, and the bishops right. are brothers. And you deliberate yeah. together and um, you don't lord it over each other. Um, so mm -hmm. they definitely had a patristic ecclesiology, and that's a very positive thing. The problem yeah. is the way that it concretely instantiated was anti-papalism to a level right. that was that was that was too much. But yeah, they I think they're forerunners of the notion of um certainly the well, they saw it as the proper interpretation of Trent. They saw it as the yeah. the, the, the Tridentine model of the bishop. Um, but of course that's not how Rome saw it. And, and, uh, not, yeah. I don't think how Borromeo would have found this too extreme, I think. Um, so there are positive ecclesiological content. I think a lot of it also is to do with the laity. They have a real sense of the, the baptism of, you know, the, uh, sorry, the, the priesthood of all believers, you know, yeah. that we see in first Peter, not in a Protestant sense, or at least in what we caricature as a Protestant sense. I think they had a sense very similar to what we see yeah. in the second Vatican council. Um, yeah, this is very interesting. I mean, nowadays, I mean, the progressives are, are almost not even part of this conversation because they just want to cave into to the world. But but in in the more traditionalist circles, it, you kind of have this uh, Gallican attitude. Uh, but it but it goes against a certain form of collegiality in certain instances. Uh, but definitely against um, uh, definitely against this antiquarian. Um, you know, going back to the church fathers, this kind of, uh, um, uh, you know, downplay of uh, scholasticism. So uh, it's what we were saying earlier. A lot of these elements have been shifted around. Totally. And uh, yeah, so I find that very interesting. But it seems the thread seems to be um, that things do work if Rome approves. Right. Uh, mm. So people had legitimate concerns, you know, be they Jansenists or Jesuits. Uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, it you know, successful reform takes place with Roman approval. I do right. think that's what we see in Vatican II, which is the elements mm. that some of these philo Jansenists uh, were pushing for, but also keeping the, the Jesuit, uh, you know, ultramontanism is what, you know, and establishing collegiality. This is what the council is seeking. It's kind of a synthesis, really, of yeah, reform. Yeah. What, do you, what do you think? Yeah. No, I think, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I, I argue something similar to that in my book, where I think the, the in many ways, Vatican I is completely repudiating Pistoia. I mean, they talk about it in the Acta. They say, like, this is the, um, what do they call them? Um, Ricciani, the Riccians, or uh, mm -hmm. uh, Pistoiani. 
Yeah. Um, pistoiensis is the is the yeah. Latin term they say. But um, so they deliberately reject parts of the Senate of Pistoia for sure. Mm -hmm. uh, nevertheless, because the Ultramontanes win at Vatican I, they create this kind of like demilitarized Chasm. space oh. where you can now, when Ratzinger and Congar and all these people are talking about all this stuff that you actually see with these early modern, you know, bad guys, bad isms, yeah. it's not threatening to the papacy anymore in the way that it was at that time, because it's not associated with directly challenging papal authority to judge doctrine or something like that, because none of them did that. They were all yeah. thoroughly ultramontane from the perspective of the 18th century. So yeah, I agree. It allows Vatican I in a, in a, in a weird roundabout way allows for Vatican II because it allows this kind of these kind of out of bounds lines that everyone can sort of reintroduce all these old ideas in a more constructive mm -hmm. way. There's yeah. a wonderful French historian who passed away, um, tragically passed away when he was 40 named Emile Peru Sasson. And he has a great book called Catholicism and democracy. And I got some of what I just said from that. Mm -hmm. And, and, but you, you picked that up from our conversation that this, this is a yeah. dynamic of, of what the long play is, from Jansenism or 18th century conflict to Vatican one to Vatican two. And, yeah. and Vatican one is an important link in the chain that makes Vatican two possible. And I mean, we see this with the uh, counter reformation as well. It seems to me reformation only ever works genuinely, uh, you know, when it has the backing of Rome, uh, you know, as Catholics, I feel like that's just, it's just common sense. But again, I understand the heated debates and the, the, you know, the, the yeah. wounds and all that. I get that. But um, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, that's the that's problem. But Dom, the problem is when you and, and Congar, true and false reform in the church is just so beautifully lays this out with he grabs stuff from the Middle Ages to his own day to this period. Mm -hmm. The problem is reformers are typically super intense people who get obsessed with like yes. one idea or two ideas. And when Rome doesn't go along with it or condemns them, it yes. causes these people to have existential crises. And I don't mean to separate mm -hmm. myself from that in the sense that maybe I would react that way right. if I was, you know, Laminet or Ricci or any of these people. It, it, yeah. And then it's like, what do you do? You know, because you you feel that the truth has been condemned and what do you, you know, and you're thrown into a crisis of conscience. So it's, it's brutally difficult. It, but Congar, I think, says, look, there some reform is only right when the timing is right. So you can have a great idea yeah. in the wrong time frame. And if the church isn't ready for yeah. that idea, you're just hurting, you're hurting the body, you know, and that's very yeah. hard to accept. I, I mean, I agree. I also, I mean, you see this at the end of one of Ratzinger's works. He, he kind of bemoans how harshly they dealt with the, the commentary tradition, the neo-scholastic, uh, oh, uh, so, yeah. yeah. And he says, you know, we, we went a little too far. I would agree yeah. with that. Uh <laughs> he, well, he, he's funny. Cause if you read him, I'm, I love Ratzinger's writing, but if you read yeah. him in the sixties, he's pretty, yes. he's pretty critical the sixties yes. and seventies. Yeah. And then in the eighties, he's like, hold on a second. Did I become, <laughs> I think he's worried that he became some of the stuff that he was against yeah. as far as, throwing out the uh the right the views of the opponent or the views of the you know and, and that's why he because at one point he says my theology is consistent you know there's 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 different nuances and emphases 
but it is essentially consistent. And I, I truly take him at his word uh, when it comes to that. The reason why there seems to be shifts in Ratzinger, mm -hmm. I think, is because there's shifts around him. But I do think mm -hmm. he's consistent. Um, I do think in general, yes. No, yeah. I think in general that's true. I do think that he reevaluated later in life. Yeah. I think he sees more good in the preconciliar church now than he did in the 60s and 70s. But in the 60s and 70s, he's in the thick of the debate and yeah. he's trying to yeah. enshrine certain ideas about divine revelation and scripture yes. and all that. And then once yeah. that's sort of in the bag, I think he's like, well, you know, mm -hmm. he can sort of moderate his views, which is only natural. But I agree with you. I don't see some radical shift in pre-1968, no. post-1968. I've never really yeah. thought that either. No, and I mean, you see this with the Lubach as well, you know, decrying uh, pre-conciliar problems and post-conciliar problems. Um, okay, well, uh, and, and that's another thing is that reform, uh, again, takes time. The church, you know, there's a, there's a grand scale here. And uh, uh, I understand the anxiety and people get up in arms and all that kind of stuff. But the church moves a lot slower than we do. And, yeah. uh, and oh, so yeah. some, we just got to remember the essentials, which is, you know, sacraments, yeah. uh, obedience, you know, bishop, pope. Of course, there's going to be scandal, chaos and corruption, but it doesn't take away from the constitution of the church. And uh, I think people get lost in, on, on these Twitter wars, these YouTube comments, yeah, and yeah, these, for sure. these people. And uh, it can be very anxiety inducing. A lot of people have been yeah. reaching out to me saying, you know, what's going on? You know, the, the church yeah. that I love is 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 going crazy. I'm like, totally. we don't have it that bad compared to like yeah. before the the before the uh, Carolingian Renaissance. I mean, there was bishops yeah. sleeping around and <laughs> yeah. it was crazy. Kill, stuff. Killing each other and stuff. Yeah. yeah the, the, the real dark age was, yeah, that stuff in the eight, nine hundreds was. Oh, my absolutely, goodness. Absolutely. It's like yeah. it would be like a, a the worst episode of Game of Thrones is like some of the stuff that was, <laughs> that was going on at the time. Uh, no, I oh totally agree. I wanted yeah. to say, though, with um, with Ricci in particular, the bishop who mm -hmm. presided over the Senate of Pistoia, uh, there is a great American um, Je a Jesuit historian. This is the irony is oftentimes Jesuits do this great historical work on Jansenism. But his name was Samuel J. Miller. He passed away. He was a uh, professor at Boston College, but he had a really uh, comment that stuck with me when I was researching for for my book on Pistoia. Mm -hmm. the, the Archbishop of Florence was a man named uh, Martini, and mm -hmm. he translated the Bible into Italian. So the first approved Italian Bible since the Counter-Reformation was translated by an anti-Jansenist. OK, so that's not the narrative, right? The narrative mm -hmm. is Jansenists are pro-vernacular scripture, which they were. But that yeah. doesn't mean everyone else was anti. The Archbishop of Bologna was a really, really good man named uh, Giovannetti. And he mm. wanted to collaborate with Ricci and he thought Ricci had a lot of good ideas, but he was totally turned off by how bitter he was, by how arrogant he was and by how headstrong he was. So yeah. what Miller said in this article was if Ricci could have found a, a effective collaboration, which would have required compromise and would have required yeah. humility with the Cardinal Archbishop of Bologna and the Archbishop of Florence, he probably could have had a synod of the of the Duchy of Tuscany that would have had lasting positive um, reform. Rome might yeah. have not liked all of it, but they probably wouldn't have condemned it if it had been, yeah. if he'd been backed by the yeah. second man in the papal states and the Archbishop of Florence. But Ricci antagonized them, you know, and yeah. he and he said he basically said, "You're either with me or against me. I'm on the yeah. side of truth, and you're that means you're part of the problem." And 
that's that was a huge missed opportunity. And I think Ricci, I don't know what happened at the at the end of his life, but he has a real note of meaning. I don't know what he thought internally about this, but he has a real note of sadness when you read his letters. He ultimately reconciles with the Pope, which is a beautiful uh, scene. The Pope Pius yeah. VII visits him in retirement and they hug and Ricci oh, weeps. Yeah. And it's a really so there was he yeah. had a sense of peace, but I think he I think he really regretted the way his life turned. Yeah. And uh, it needn't have been that way, uh, yeah. which is but it's easy for me to say, you know, 200 years later, looking at it at the time, who knows, I may have acted worse than he did. I don't know. <laughs> well, this is what I love about history. It's uh, applicability. Also, it's just endlessly fascinating. But, you know, uh, the viewers will notice we haven't really brought up that much, uh, you know, explicit references to today. I think they're apparent in what we've said. And yeah. so that's all we're doing really is presenting history and, and seeing how maybe that might inform us today. And uh, um, yeah, fascinating topic. I could talk to you for hours, but we have hit the hour and eight minute mark. So I think. Yeah, place sure. Yeah, we can, we can wrap up for sure. Let me yeah. let me just say one thing I wanted to say about Vatican II is that. Um, Go ahead. Yeah, there is a debate. So the Senate of Pistoia, there's all this applicability, which which you, you've drawn, Dom, without me even prompting you of the way reform works and the way that it can go off the rails or, or ultimately succeed. But the legacy of the document that condemns the Senate of Pistoia is called Octorum Fide. That document oh, yeah. becomes really important in like uh, the scholastic manuals, seminary education. It gets quoted in papal encyclicals um, against modernism, against Americanism, against all kinds of things. But at Vatican II, when they're debating ecclesiality, uh, excuse me, debating collegiality, Mm -hmm. One of the bishops who's wary of collegiality named Luigi Carli evokes Octorum Fide and says, hey, whoa, 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 you know, mm -hmm. um, the, the, the Pope has absolute right to intervene in the diocese. He, he basically uh, quotes passages of Octorum Fide, which, which grievously offends the proponents of collegiality, and there's this massive uproar. Ultimately, yeah. the majority obviously say, look, what we're advocating for is fine, and it's patristic, yeah. and it doesn't impugn mm -hmm. papal primacy. But the minority then privately go to Pope Paul VI and they go, look, mm -hmm. you, you need to be really careful about this. And Yves Congar has a great line in his in his diary. He says the specter of Pistoia was brought <laughs> to uh, Pope Paul VI. And then Pope Paul VI approves the um, nota previa explicativa, you know, the explanatory note. Ratzinger which is, didn't like that one. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. At the time. Yeah. Well, I, I think yeah. he still probably isn't. But. I yeah. think that's one thing that he maybe somewhat softened yeah. on now. But, yeah, yeah, but yeah, anyway, yeah. my point is Pistoia isn't just like in the ether. It's actually explicitly in that debate. It becomes mm -hmm. important only for like two or three days in the council. But it's there and it's possibly, Congar believed, behind the Nota Previa, which means in a funny way, Pope Pius VI has the last laugh, actually. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> excellent excellent okay well thank you so much sean thank Is you there, um yeah anytime uh for the audience do you want to plug your books maybe do you have a website anything like that you know i don't really have a personal website i'm on academia.edu where i upload citations of my work and if it's like the church life journal which i write for a couple times a year i link those um but i'm uh at the moment, and speaking of Jansenism, I've just finished with my friend Rick Yoder, who's a doctoral candidate at Penn State University. Um, he works for a great, works under a great uh, historian of early modern Catholicism. 
Mm-hmm. Um, we've we've co-edited a volume of Jansenist translations, and mm-hmm. that is under review at the moment. So it's 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 uh, hopefully everything goes well and it will be out probably late next year or maybe early the following year. But that's 30 translated texts from um, seven different languages. Uh, Wow. Not all done by us, obviously, yeah. done by a team of yeah. people. We have a, we had a team of about 15 people, but it's men, women, uh, clergy, laity, and uh, everywhere everywhere from Portugal to um, Lebanon. In fact, there's uh, wow. some influence of the Synod of Pistoia with the Melkite Catholics. Um, so it's a really I don't I don't mean to uh, plug my own thing too enthusiastically, no, but it, you yeah. know nothing. We don't know of anything else like that existing, so we're super excited about it. And then I have a short book on Vatican II that I co-wrote with Stephen Bolivant, um, who would be a great person for you to talk to, by the way. Um, Stephen yeah. Bolivant teaches at a Catholic university in London. Okay. And uh, so we, we co-wrote a short book called Vatican II, A Very Short Introduction, and that will be out in March. Um, and that's that's a quick read, and it's only $10, unlike these massive... Uh, yeah. Tomes that are a hundred dollars, you know, so I, 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 I'm going to, I'm going to buy it for my friends for Christmas, the, the, the $10 book. Yeah. Uh, is there a link uh, already up on Amazon? There should be a link. Uh, uh, it's Oxford university press, very short introduction. So there should be a link either I'll, on I'll, their website. I'll put um, it in the show notes. Uh, if yeah. You want. It sounds good. Yeah. So that should be out in, uh, in March. And then um, I'm going to try to find an excuse to write, more about Jansenism the, uh, as soon as possible. So, <laughs> Sounds great. All right. Well, uh, thank you so much on audience. Please like this video. Please subscribe. Hit that notification bell. Comment down below. And if you want to support us, support us at patreon.com slash the Logos Project. Let me get that banner up. Here we go. Um, all right. Well, uh, thanks again, Sean, and thank you everyone else, and we'll see you guys next time. Thanks very much, Tom. Take care.